I want to speak this morning on the gazelle god. Yes, we have a new totem that we're going to be worshiping here this morning. The gazelle god. I want to read from the Song of Songs. Chapter 2, where the Beloved says, and if the ushers would come forward because we're going to pray for the offering and right after this. The voice of my Beloved, look, He comes, says the bridesmaid, leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My Beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Love this book. <laughs> my Beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. In second grade, I think it was in second grade, I was... Um, in recess at St. Patrick's Elementary School in Ohio. And we were playing some kind of game, and it got a little bit rough. And at some point, I pushed Teresa Griffith down on the ground. And her legs went up in the air, and she was wearing one of the Catholic uniforms. And so I saw her underwear. And that meant I had to marry her. Uh, at such a young age. She was a short, a short, chubby girl and very nice, uh, and neither of us had a lot of friends, so we became very good friends, and I figured if I'm going to marry her, I might as well start courting her now. I don't know where I got that idea. That wasn't like a Catholic rule. If you ever see a girl's underwear, you must marry her. You know, that's like uh, the ultimate abstinence rule. But um, I just had that rule in my head. Somehow I felt obligated, so we're, we're, you know, we became very good friends. Probably six months after that or so, I felt it was safe, it was appropriate as we were going forward in our courtship that I revealed to her in the recess parking lot in a corner where no one could see my true identity. I told her that I was, in fact, Superboy. <laughs> oh, she chuckled at first too. Uh, she said, you mean you, you like to play like you're Superboy? You like to pretend like you're Superboy? You like to act like you're Superboy? I said, no, I, I am, in fact, Superboy. And to prove it, I unbuttoned the first two buttons of my shirt and exposed to her the top of my cape that was nicely put together by a safety pin that I wore to school every day. If I could have showed her the whole thing, it would have been colored in bright red and, and it had a big S in the middle, just like the real thing. It was the real thing. I wanted to be Superboy, doggone it. I wanted it so bad I could taste it. I was Superboy. There, I, I would go home and I would practice being Superboy. I would... Uh, I remember I, I, my, my dad had this, this, uh, these barbells, and on the, on, the, on the cover of it, there was this drawing of a guy with muscles, and I thought, oh, I'm going to be like that. And so I would try to lift weights. I got my sister on the deal. She was going to be super girl. And, and we, we were just, we, we, we'd lift it three times and go, look it. Whoa, it's getting bigger. And we'd practice jumping. And, and, and it, we, we, could just, we could just tell that we were getting closer and closer to flying. Oh, yes, indeed. When a, when a siren would go off, I would try to fly, you know, and, and I, I, it never worked, surprisingly, but uh, that was because there was kryptonite in our area, you know, and, and I had reasons for it, but I wanted to be Superboy. I wanted to rescue a damsel in distress. I wanted to be that guy I saw on TV and read about in Marvel comic books. And with that, I wanted to be Elvis Presley. <laughs> Both at the same time, why not? Oh, you watch, you know, I grew up in the 60s. You know, you're a seven, eight-year-old boy, and, and you're watching Elvis Presley, and they had these corny, 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 corny beach movies, you know, where, where they're all kind of on the beach, and all of a sudden Elvis decides to stand up and start singing a song. And all the girls are like, oh, you know, and, and they're all around him, and it's like, oh, I got goosebumps just watching that. You know, he's got that snarl. And, uh, I wanted to be that. You want to know why I did Born to be Wild like I did the other week? Well, there you go. That explains the whole lot, doesn't it? You know, I, 
Oh, so in my fantasy world, in my fantasy world, I, I would, when, 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 especially with music in the background, with Georgie Girl, I love that song. You're always window shopping, but never stopping to buy. Remember that song? And downtown and all those cool 60s songs. When they would come on, I'd go into this daydream. And the, the bad guys would break into our school and, and uh, they, they, they'd type all the pretty girls. And, uh, but I would sneak aside and, Superboy, and Superstar. Yeah. And I'd, I'd, I'd go flying in there and whap, bam, oof, zow. You know, I'd beat them all up. And, uh, and then, and the music would be going. In fact, I'd be singing while I'm doing it. Always window shopping, but never stopping. And then when it's done, I untie the girls and I get out the guitar. With my cape. Oh, yes. Smoking. And the girls are like, you know, okay, see, I would grant that I pushed it a little farther than a lot of little kids do. But not much. Okay, I was weird. I'll give you that. I, I probably shouldn't have told you all this, should I? You know too much about me. It's like, call the doctors. But most kids, especially if they're healthy, have fantasies like that. You know, when, when you're playing Snow White and Cinderella, you are Snow White and Cinderella. And when little kids are playing with the action figures, you know, why does no one want to be the bad guy? Well, it's because they want to be the good guy. It's not just about these little toys here. They're not playing this like you play a chess game. No, they are. They're incarnating themselves. You know, they, they are the, the Marlboro Man or John Wayne or whatever the kids are today. You know, I, I don't know what kids play with. But they incarnate that. They want to be rescued. You see, these things answer and express deep questions that we have that are part of what it is to be human. Deep questions. What am I worth? Am, am I up to snuff? Am I, am I competent? Am I capable? What is the significance of my life? Am I attractive? Uh, do, and the way that gets played out to a little boy discovering hormones is, do girls like me? Will they flock to me like Elvis Presley? Uh, you know, I, I, am I worth pursuing? Will someone chase me? Will someone rescue me? Maybe you ask, am I, am I a princess that someone is pursuing? Deep questions in the heart. And maybe the particular way they get played out is the result of the fall and aspects of our culture. But the fact that you've got the need there that gets expressed with these fantasies uh, is not fallen. That's, that, that's part of who you are. It's part of what you were created for. When we grow older, uh, the way that we go about trying to ask that question, play that game, raise those issues, the way that we do it is a little bit different, hopefully. If you go to your reunion and, and some, some people have not grown a whole lot out of those same sticks they used to get, you know, used to do in order to get a little bit of attention, a little bit of life, you still got the guy who's the James Bond, Elvis Presley, 43 years old, he's still got his collar. Hey! So how you been doing? You know, you got a tall tale to tell, or you got the gal who's still trying to do Pamela Anderson, you know, and, and it, it, it worked for her a little bit in seventh grade, but at the age of 45, it's time to get a new shtick, gal. Yeah, you, know, try to, but you get people who get stuck. It worked for them once upon a time, so they keep on trying and trying and trying, and it's kind of sad. It's kind of sad. We get stuck, you know. But, but for most people, you're, you're, the means by which you ask the question and try to answer the question is different, but the question itself is the same. Most people, when they get older, they try to answer that question by getting people to like them, by getting people to think they're funny, by getting a bigger house and going up the totem pole in success and getting a prestigious this or whatever. There's a million, trillion different ways that we try to answer that, 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 that question. But the question is itself the same. Am I significant? Am I worth pursuing? Am I attracting, attractive? Am I lovely? Is my life meaningful? Does my life count? Am I important to somebody? Always trying to meet that. But what we learn if we really mature is that even when we get what we want to get, we don't get what we want to get. 
The question, the, the longings, the thirst is never totally satisfied. I don't care how good you do it by our cultural standards. The question, the question and the longing outruns what any answer in this world can get. And as you wake up a little bit more and as you mature a little bit more, you, you, you begin to realize that it's really a philosophical thing. If this life is all there is, we talked about this last week, if this life is all there is, then when you die, that's it. And that means that in the end, love doesn't conquer uh, everything. Good doesn't conquer evil. Your life isn't significant. Ultimately, you're not important. You make no difference whatsoever, and you're not going to be rescued. If this life is all there is, then in fact, it's far more miserable than we could ever imagine and far more absurd than we could ever imagine because the fundamental needs of the heart, the things that define us as human beings to the core of our being, go unanswered in the way the world actually operates. What we suggested last week was this. The fact that we long for, hunger for, thirst for something that this world can't give tells us that we are beings who created for more than what this world can give. The Bible fits. The story of the Bible fits. It, there's a rightness to it. It, 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 it. it lands in our heart because it explains and fulfills the longings of our soul. We're created in the image of God. We're created to express God. We're created to replicate God. And, and what that means in the biblical story is this. He creates us with a longing for, for significance and a longing for importance and a longing for love and a longing for intimacy and a longing for life and a longing for adventure because that's the kind of God He is. And He wants to pour Himself into us and fulfill all of that. And then He wants us to overflow in our relationship with one another. We were never meant to try to answer that question by, the, by our environment. We're meant to answer that question by our relationship with God and express it in our environment out of the fullness that we get from God. That's how it was structured. But we fell, and so now we're aliens, as it were, beings who are freaks of nature living in two worlds. What in the end it means is this. All the longings of our heart, the thirst of our heart uh, for a water that the world doesn't give, and the hunger of our heart for a food that the world doesn't give, the, the, the gasping of our spiritual lungs for an air that the world itself can't give, all of it is there, we suggested last week, to drive us to the one who can give it. And it's nothing in this world, it's no one in this world. It's the God who created us manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. You were made for a profound, uh, 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 absolutely intimate, gracious, beautiful relationship with Jesus Christ. And only when you find that relationship with Jesus Christ does the longing of the heart, the hunger and thirst of the soul begin to be satisfied. Jesus Christ, we said last week, is, is uh, God incarnate. He's the Word of God incarnate. He's the image of God here on earth. And what it means is this. He is the, the, uh, the, the, your dream come true. He is the satisfaction for every profound, de defining longing of your heart. He is the food that you've always hungered for. and He is the spiritual water that you've ever th always thirsted for. Come and drink of me, he says, and you'll never thirst again. He is the air that your spiritual lungs were meant to breathe. And so all the longings and all the, the, the hunger and thirst that's expressed in all the great literature and all the great art and all the great music of the world, in the end, points to him. Amen? He is the love story. He is the love of every love story. And He's the beauty behind every beautiful scene. And He's the, the, the poetry of every poem. He's the depth of every exquisite work of art. He's the romance of every romance story ever told. He, he is the real thing to which everything else in this world points. 
and our, the, the fantasies, the, the longings, the question of our significance, it's simply a homing mechanism that exists to drive us to Jesus Christ. Now, when you don't know the Lord, whether because you're ignorant of it or because you choose not to be related to Him, you latch that homing mechanism onto the wrong stuff. And you go through life unsatisfied. It's there to point us to Jesus Christ. Now, here's the point of today's sermon. Your life will be alive. And you will have passion and fullness to the extent that you see and experience and believe to the core of your being everything I just said. Passion in the Christian life. This is why I'm spending time on this series, Passions of the Heart. Passion in the Christian life uh, is the result of seeing the beauty of God and the beauty of who you can be because of who God is, period. When we see beauty, we respond. When we see loveliness, when, when we find the food that we're hungry for and find the well that we're thirsty for, we respond. We go towards it. It's a natural thing. Passion in the Christian life is always, if it's healthy, it's the result of seeing the beauty of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and the beauty of who you can be because of what He's done for you in Jesus Christ. We so often, in fact, we usually in Christendom, we, we degenerate to the level of a religion. And, and what that means is this. We try to motivate behavior, cajole behavior, manipulate behavior with oughts and should and shame and fear. And the most that can do if it does anything is change the outside of a person. And it only does that temporarily. But what God wants is not modified behavior. What He wants is regenerate people. There's got to be a change on the inside. He wants the way that you look at the world, the, the heart, the experience to change. And when you've changed that, you change the behavior. But the only thing that reaches the core of the being of the soul of a human being is the, the, is the beauty, the ecstasy, the profound loveliness of the person of Jesus Christ. And when the heart sees that, when the heart experiences that, now there's a change. Now we begin to let go of all the other things we've been chasing to try to answer the fundamental questions of our life, when we see how satisfying Jesus in all of His radiance and beauty is, then the things of the world begin to grow dim. What motivates God and what motivates human beings are in the end one of the same thing. It is outrageous love. God is motivated to come towards us because of a vision of beauty that He sees. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 12, that Jesus Christ, this is such an outrageous verse, it's preposterous. Jesus, God Almighty we're talking about, Creator of the universe we're talking about here, for the joy that was set before Him, for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the suffering of the cross, scorning its shame. Now what was the joy set before Him? It wasn't the cross. The cross was nightmares. The, the cross was hell. The cross was, was the word. We can't begin to imagine what it was for God to uh, enter into what was antithetical to Himself and, and experience the nightmare of the torture of the cross. That was not joy. That was nightmare suffering for the Son of God. What was joy... It's the prospect of having a relationship with you and having a relationship with me because of what He did, did on the cross. He looks at the beauty of the bride that He is going to redeem. He's ravished by the beauty of the bride that He wants to redeem. He sees the, His own unsurpassable beauty reflected in the, the beauty of the bride He wants to redeem. And it gives Him joy to pay the price that He paid to get her, to ransom her out of slavery. He didn't just tolerate it. He didn't just put up with it. He counted it joy. I don't know why He would consider me joy. I don't know why He would do that, but that's what makes Him God. 
He looks at this bride that he wants to redeem, and he's motivated by that love. There's not an author, there's not a should. No one's there to tell God what he ought to do. He does it, he's compelled by love. And he expresses that love on Calvary, and that's what makes us lovely. And now when we see that, I mean really see it. I I don't mean to just mean sort of believe it, kind of like, you know, in the back of our mind. When we really begin to believe it, see it, hear it, the outrageous beauty of, of the Lord, then we are moved to respond back. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, it's Christ's love that compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. Now, Paul, why is it that you're willing to go to prison? Why is it that you're willing to be whipped four different times? Why is it that you're willing to be persecuted? You had it good. You were prestigious. You were a scholar. You were respected. You were a Pharisee. Why? To give the whole thing up and live a life going from town to town to town without a family, without a wife, forsaking the whole thing, no longer respected, hunted down, ultimately martyred. What would lead you to do such a crazy, ridiculous thing? And the answer is, well, because I, you know, there's, an, there's a should, there's, there's a rule, you know, or I'm trying to get God to like me. No. It's the love of Christ that he already sees. It's the love of Christ that one died for all. Uh, when I see, this is Paul's answer, when I see this love, when I see this beauty, when I see what he's done for me, when I see what I was and now I see where I'm going, when I see that love, that beauty, then, then there's something in me that just compels me. It's like a magnet. It pulls me on. And I'm willing to go anywhere with you. I'm willing to do anything with you. I'm willing to forsake everything for you. It's the love of Christ that compels him. God's outrageous love expressed in the cross drives God to the cross and God's outrageous love uh, on the cross is what drives us to the cross to say yes to Him and then to begin to live life in that way. You can diagram it like this. You know, God, God's, God's motivation, God's passion drives Him to the cross and when we see that our passion, we're inflamed with passion. When we see how He's ravished towards us, we become ravished in love towards Him and now we begin to pursue Him. And this makes all the difference in the world makes all the difference in the world. You see, without, without a vision of passion, without a vision for God's beauty, without a vision for God's love, the Christian life and all religion and all ethics is drudgery. So we're talking about here is discipleship and sanctification. It's all a bunch of meaningless drudgery unless you get the big picture, unless you see the story and see the outrageous beauty behind the whole thing. Motivation is everything. Motivation is everything. Several years ago, about 15, 16 years ago actually, I was at a playground with my two daughters and we were swinging on this slingshot swing where one person would swing around and the other one would swing around and, and, and the momentum of the one would then spur the momentum of the other. And we were at this playground. We just moved to Minnesota. I don't even know where we were, but I was kind of pushing them and we were having a lot of fun. But my younger daughter, who was six years old, began to feel kind of sick. Now the thing about the slingshot thing is, is that, that you, when you spin around, there's a time we actually go backwards a little bit, and then you swing around again and you go backwards a little bit. They don't make these anymore, by the way, I'm told, because they're too dangerous. <laughs> now they tell you. So my daughter, when, 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 her slide, when, when, her, when, her, when her seat slowed down, she tried to get off. She thought it came to a stop. But then, boom, it slung her forward, and she went flying through the air, and she lands in the sand. Now what I didn't see, and they don't do this anymore either, is that Underneath the sand, there was this concrete curb. And she hit her head on this jagged concrete curb and gashed her head. And uh, uh, she looks up at me, and all of a sudden blood begins to pulsate out of her forehead. It was just gushing. It was just red. It was, and I looked at her, and I didn't know what, how that had happened. I didn't see any rocks. I still didn't see the concrete slab underneath the sand. 
But all of a sudden, this adrenaline just shot through me. It's like, <gasps> you know, it just takes your breath away. And then there's like fatty tissue that was oozing out of the cut. You know, it was really deep. And I thought it was her brains. So I'm thinking, oh man, she's your brain damage. So I run over there and I grab my shirt and I put it on her forehead and I just begin to run. I, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know where I was. I just begin to run. But I'm panicking. I see a bunch of people at this uh, uh, picnic table and I run over there and I try to find out where's the nearest hospital. I got to get to the hospital. And uh, they're all drunk. And they start like, well, it's St. Joseph. No, St. Joseph. Nah, you idiot. We argued about this before. They start arguing with one another. It's like, this is a nightmare, nightmare. So I just say, listen, watch my older daughter. I'm going to try to find help. So I run. I see this beach house, and I run like crazy. Just, I, I, don't, I, don't, I was like in this state of shock where I don't even remember doing it. But I just remember feeling I've got to get there as fast as possible. I get to this beach house, and thankfully there was a lifeguard who was there. And he's able to call the ambulance. The ambulance comes and gets my daughter and my other daughter. And we go to the hospital and call my wife. And she comes and we get my daughter stitched up. And everything was okay. It was such a traumatic experience. Now here's the thing. It was only when finally it was over. I was like this. That I noticed I was barefoot. And I had been barefoot the whole time. And my feet were cut to pieces. Because I had run on this gravel. There's a, the, the road I ran on when I was going to this beach house was gravel. Now, under ordinary circumstances, it's like, ah, you know, going on gravel is just, ah. You ever done it barefoot? It's like, oh, ah, ah. You know, it's just terrible. You, you, you inch your way forward. Here, I didn't even notice it. Why? It's because I was motivated. I was motivated. I had a vision. <laughs> I had a vision that I had to accomplish, and that was so important. I didn't even notice what's going on with my feet, you see? Now, the Christian life, the Christian life, frankly, is difficult. If you're taking it seriously, it involves a lot of stuff that the flesh says, ouch to. Now, if you're just playing church, you don't know what I'm talking about. But if you're serious about going forward in the Christian life, the Bible talks about self-sacrifice. It talks about dying to yourself. It talks about discipline. It talks about sanctification, you know. Uh, it, it, it talks about swimming upstream in the culture. To, to live the Christian life, there's a lot of stuff that, that the flesh says, ouch to. This doesn't, feel, this doesn't feel comfortable for me. This isn't convenient. No longer living for yourself. No longer chasing the American dream. Uh, spending some of your time and some of your resources on furthering the kingdom. In most cultures, to be a Christian throughout history has meant that you have to be willing to die for your faith and maybe watch your kids die for the faith. This isn't a pleasant picnic. You see, and if you're doing it on the basis of an ought and the basis of a should, on the basis of because you're ashamed if you don't or some kind of fear, you know what? It's nothing but drudgery. It's bad news. That's, it's just not, not the thing you want to do. But when you can see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and the beauty of who you are because of the Lord Jesus Christ and the beauty of the goal, when you start living in the whole story, this is what Paul is saying, the love of Christ begins to compel you. When you understand and really believe and lock in and get a visual on this thing of just how powerful, how profound, how gorgeous God is, it just begins to change you. And I'm not saying you don't notice the rocks, but man, it's worth it. Because every step now is a step towards the goal. It's a step of freedom. It's a step of increased relationship with the Lord. It's a step of further intimacy with the Lord, and you want it. You're hungry for it. You can taste it. We pursue God when we really believe, really see, hear Him pursuing us. Now, a picture's worth a thousand words. And so I'm going to give you a picture here. Everything hangs upon you really coming to accept. And entering into the story of God pursuing you in all of His love, in all of His beauty, 
to make you a beautiful bride. Here's a little shot from a movie called The Last of the Mohicans. It's a story of pursuing. It's a beautiful story of pursuing. Um, to set this up, the lover, the, the man, and the, and, and the woman, they're, they're passionately in love. Uh, you know, and, and uh, it's just, the story's gotten you really invested in their relationship. But they've been chased by this evil guy with this evil tribe. The guy's name is Magua. And, and they're after him, and they're going to kill them, all right? But the, the, this couple and some others got trapped behind this uh, waterfall, and now there's no escape. The only way that they can get out of this alive is for the, the, the man to uh, leave, and he and his two friends who are from the, the Mohican tribe, to, to jump into this cliff. And by time, because they're sure that this evil tribe won't kill the women, and there's this other British guy along with him, won't kill them right away. And, and so he says, I, he says that this is his last words. He goes, he says to his, his, his beloved, I will find you. You just stay alive. I will find you no matter how far, no matter how hard, no matter how long. I will find you. And then he leaves. Now the story we're seeing here picks up right when he's beginning his pursuit of her. Watch. much hangs on this. Are you able to see the Trinity and centered on the Son of God, who is the leader in this whole thing, racing towards you with that kind of intensity, with that kind of passion, with that kind of determination? Are you able to see that and really believe it? See, this story, like every true story, is, is a, a pointer to the one truest story, which is the Gospel. There's a part of us that longs to be chased like that because in the real story, we are supposed to be chased. The truth is that God does pursue us, that God chases us. 
It starts in the garden when he says, Adam, where are you? It continues throughout the Old Testament. It doesn't always look like it. Uh, even here, the, the lover had to go away for a while. It doesn't always look like he's chasing us, but he's chasing us and it always has been. He chases us in the book of Hosea when he says through Israel, will you come back to me? You're breaking my heart going off in adultery. He goes looking for his love, for his bride. But you really see the story climax in the person of Jesus Christ when you see the extent to which God is willing to go to rescue back a bride. The difference is this, that that bride in the, in the false story was, was, was just taken captive. We sold ourselves into slavery. We did it voluntarily. But the Son of God with that kind of passion and the Son of God with that kind of intensity, He pursued us and He pursued us. And He's pursuing us still. Now maybe you, like me, have got things in your head, aspects of of, of your brain, aspects of your soul, maybe very deep ones, that say this. That can't possibly be true. No one's ever pursued me like that. No one's ever loved me like that. No one's ever cared for me like that. God can't possibly be this beautiful. I can't be worth it. What I just want to tell you is this. That is a lie out of the pit of hell. And you will be healed only when you can just... Fix your eyes upon Jesus, who for the joy of you endured the suffering of the cross. He's been running and running and running and running. The Song of Solomon, I, I don't have time to read this whole passage here, but, it, but the, it, it's a story of the Lord pursuing His bride. And, and it says, look, the voice of my beloved, look, He comes, leaping on the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. He stands behind our wall, gazing at the windows through the lattice with his eyes of love and says, Arise, my love, my fair one. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. And in, in chapter 4, next slide, he says, How beautiful you are, my love. How very beautiful. Not because of what you do. Not because of, of it's in spite of what you've done. But you're beautiful because of what he has done for you on the cross of Calvary. And now he looks at you and he sees a mirror of himself and he says, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are doves behind your veil, looking, going down a little ways. He says, depart from the peak of Amana, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. What he's saying there is this. Let's get out of this dump. Let's get out of the peak of Amana where there's these lions and dangerous you know, leopards. Let's go someplace in the cleft of the rock where you and I can be together. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. The Lord says, for you have ravished my heart. You have ravished my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Can you enter into this story that the Lord, the Lord looks upon you with that kind of love and pursues you with that kind of intensity? Only to the extent that you do that, do you see that, do you enter into this story, does Christianity stop being a bunch of oughts? It starts being an internal compelling thing. But you know, no, I, you know what, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll go where you want me to go. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll count it all joy because I'm captivated by a vision of love. But maybe you're here this morning. I'll close with this. So the worship team comes up here. You maybe are in a place, and I've kind of been sitting around here myself, where you don't, you, you, you just have trouble relating to everything I just said because you feel lost. You feel like you're still on the hill of Amana. You feel like you're surrounded by leopards and lions. 
Uh, you, you, maybe it's the divorce that you are going through or the fact that your, that your marriage is starting to fall apart or the job that you just lost or the fact that your friends have rejected you or the cancer you just found out that you have or the seizures that you're now having. Talk to the woman last service who's now beginning to have seizures and she has to give up her occupation, everything she ever wanted to do. And you feel lost. You feel abandoned. You just feel like, like you're take, taken captive. And it doesn't seem like anyone is pursuing you. And all I would say to you here is this. Hear those words that the beloved spoke in this movie. I will find you. I will find you. He went to Calvary to get you. He's not going to stop now. He'll chase you into the abortion clinic. He'll follow you into the divorce court. He'll, he'll be with you in the middle of that nightmare. He's chasing you, wanting your heart, wanting to redeem you. Whatever it is you're going through, as you're, through the death of your child or the death of a spouse or the death of a dream, the Lord is there. And He wants to hold you and He wants to embrace you. And all I can say to you is maybe you're too tired and too, you don't see clearly enough to pursue Him right now. But just say, here I am. Here I am. I want to be found. Will you find me? Will you find me? I want to close with this worship song. I encourage you to worship the Lord with it. It's about being hungry for God. It's about waiting for God. It's about letting yourself be found by God as He pursues you. Get a picture of the Son of God with that passion of that man chasing after you. He loves you that much. I'm falling on my
close to being as beautiful as the thought that God runs like a gazelle to be with me. Don't think I'm ever going to get that. That's part of the beauty. Would you close your eyes and pray? And is there anybody here who maybe you've been a church person for a while, but you've never surrendered your life to the Lord. You've never said, come and get me. And you see now that you need Him. The Bible says you need to believe in your heart that it's true and you need to say it with your mouth. 
And that begins the relationship. It's just saying, I want to be found. If you're here this morning and you want to be found and you've never done this before, would you raise your hand? I'm just going to pray for you from up here. I want to give you a chance to enter into the kingdom. Anybody here at all? Over there? Wonderful. Amen. Anybody else over here? You see the beauty of the Lord? Amen. Just saying, I'm over here, God. Doesn't mean you got anything to show for yourself. I don't. He's still running. He's been running after you since day one. Even before that. Anybody else? You want to be found here this morning? We've got five people who want to accept the Lord as their Savior. Anybody else? Raise a nice hand. In the back there? Wonderful. We have no idea how this delights God. In the back? Amen. Okay, those who raised their hand or those who didn't even, but you want to surrender your life to the Lord, or maybe there's just some who have been stuck on Mount Amana for a long time, and this is going to be your prayer too. Let's all pray together, but pray it from your heart. Heavenly Father, I believe that you run like a gazelle, like a young stag, to find me and to rescue me. And I confess that I need rescuing. I am a sinner in need of your grace. But I thank you, Lord, that you pursued me to Calvary and died for my sin. And so I ask you, Lord, to come into my life, to forgive me, to wash me, to make me whole, and give me your life. Thank you, Lord, for loving me. Amen. Welcome to the kingdom, you who raised your hand. I wanted to welcome you to the kingdom. Amen. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. I want to encourage you, those who raised your hand, or those who are just interested in finding out more about a relationship with the Lord, in the back of the room, in the center of the auditorium, uh, Chuck is back there. He's got some information he'd love to share with you about uh, now walking in the Christian life. The enemy hates what just happened to you. You're going to need help in in, uh, resisting him. Uh, Would the prayer team come forward? And if you are here this morning and you have something you'd like to pray about, an ache in the heart, a trouble in the relationship, whatever, these folks would be glad to spend some time praying with you, or maybe you just want to kneel at the altar and, uh, and just spend some time with the Lord. God is good, isn't He? Yes, His beauty is outrageous. Carry that beauty with you out into the world that needs it. In Jesus' name, we love you guys. Bye.